this is chapter five of A History of England, and I'm David Beeson. This is where we turn our attention to what most English school kids would have learnt was a golden age in England, that of Good Queen Bess, or Elizabeth I, who was the fifth and last of the Tudor monarchs. Of the children he had in wedlock, she was Henry VIII's second child and second daughter, although she was the third to succeed him. That's because Edward VI, as the only boy, jumped ahead of the two girls, even though he was the third child. Just like her mother Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth was a brilliant redhead and a brilliant woman. She decided right from the start of her reign that all this business of killing people because they didn't see the way to be a Christian quite the same way as others did had to stop. She became a little less tolerant towards the end of her reign, but even then she was still saying that she didn't want a window into men's souls to see what they were thinking. You can probably think of a few leaders around the world today who would do well to adopt that idea. Though Elizabeth was a Protestant herself, she didn't feel it mattered very much that a subject might be Catholic on condition that he remained loyal to the crown and discreet about his differences from the mainstream Anglican Church, which by then was firmly and decidedly Protestant. That easygoing tolerance towards religious difference, at least at the beginning of her reign, was admirable but not always easy to maintain. To understand the reason why, just remember that at the time neither Catholics nor Protestants recognised divorce. So, as far as either church was concerned, Henry was still married to his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, when he fathered Elizabeth. That, in theory at least, would make Elizabeth a bastard, where I'm using the word bastard in the technical sense of an illegitimate child, rather than in the more common sense in which you and I might agree it applies so well to Henry himself. The difficulty is that bastards can't in general inherit thrones, and that would make Elizabeth's right to sit on hers more than a little questionable. Henry had attempted to address the problem by getting an Act of Parliament passed, which specified the order of succession to him, as we know, this would be to Edward first, then Mary, and then Elizabeth, that enshrined in law the legitimacy of both Mary and Elizabeth on an equal footing with Edward, and as we've seen, Henry later confirmed these arrangements in his will. That should have done the trick, because Acts of Parliament are the law with a capital L, and English people tend to prefer to obey the law if they possibly can, or at least if it suits them. That meant that for most English people, if an Act of Parliament said Elizabeth was legit, that was an end to the matter, and legit she was. After all, Protestants had no one to turn to for support if they wanted to defy the law. Things were very different for Elizabeth's Catholic subjects, on the other hand, because they could always look to the great spiritual authority of the Pope. The Pope had never accepted the validity of Henry's divorce from Catherine of Aragon, so for him, Elizabeth remained a bastard, whatever Parliament might say. That gave English Catholics a bit of a dilemma. Was their first loyalty to Elizabeth as their queen, or to the Pope for whom she had no legitimate right to the throne in the first place? That created an awkward position for them, but also for Elizabeth, who couldn't be quite sure which way her Catholic subjects might jump if push came to shove. 
For most of the time, that just led to some general discrimination and occasional low-key persecution. Not that it was particularly low-key for the victims, of course. There were quite a few hangings, and there was even a Catholic uprising that was ferociously put down. In general, though, things were a little bit less unpleasant than in the preceding reigns. Things turned nastier, though, when the Pope decided to switch his attention from Elizabeth's supposed bastardy to her Protestantism and label her a heretic. The Pope's declaration that Elizabeth was a heretic freed her Catholic subjects from any obligation towards her and meant that it was legitimate to take whatever action was needed to bring her down or worse and replace her by a monarch who recognised the authority of Rome. And the hassle with that was that the Pope's authority wasn't just spiritual, in fact, as long as he wanted to do things that they agreed with, he could count on the support, including the military support, of European powers, notably Spain, Europe's most powerful nation, or France, the upstart that was beginning to snap at Spain's heels at this time. Other powers might help as well, and that included Scotland, England's traditional rival and enemy. A status which many would agree Scotland has never entirely lost and which has undergone something of a resurgence in recent decades. The Scottish problem was particularly serious because Mary, Queen of Scots, was the daughter of a French woman, the widow of a French king, and worst of all, a Roman Catholic. What's more, she was Elizabeth's cousin. Her grandmother had been Henry VIII's sister, which, if I've got my cousinry right, makes her Elizabeth's first cousin once removed. In fact, Mary often used to say she was Elizabeth's closest relative, which sounds friendly but really isn't, because it meant that if anything unpleasant happened to Elizabeth, then Mary would be the one to take over. You could hardly be blamed for not entirely discounting the possibility of Mary engineering something unpleasant happening to Elizabeth, given that Mary was widely suspected of having been her third husband's accomplice in bumping off her second. Mary, however, was rather short of luck. She'd been widowed within months of becoming Queen Consort of France when her husband mounted the throne there. She then returned to Scotland, which had become firmly Protestant in the meantime, not without a little help from her cousin Elizabeth south of the border. The Scots might have put up with a Catholic queen, but not after they discovered her true metal, when she married the man most people suspected of having murdered her previous husband. They stuck her in jail and her one-year-old son on the throne as James VI of Scotland, Presumably they felt that a child on the throne would give them less grief than his ghastly mother. Mary contrived to escape from prison and took refuge in England, where she appealed to her cousin Elizabeth for help in getting back onto her throne. At first Elizabeth was quite sympathetic to her pleas. After all, as I'm sure you don't need me to tell you, monarchs take a dim view of seeing other monarchs deposed. It can set an uncomfortable precedent. Elizabeth, however, was nothing if not wily, and she liked to have wily people around her, not least her chief minister, William Cecil. Cecil was highly skilled at running the kingdom, all in the Queen's name, of course, and he would give way to her view if she was absolutely firmly determined on it, but as often as not managed to talk her out of her convictions or into his when he felt that was necessary. 
For Cecil, England had to remain a Protestant nation, and the presence on the Scottish throne of a Catholic with strong connections to France was a constant threat to that prospect. To this day, the Scots remain more open to links to continental Europe than the English, and the old alliance with France was, to Scotland at least, a useful counterweight to English predominance. Cecil wanted the Queen of Scots executed, and though Elizabeth wouldn't go quite that far, she did agree that it would be worth keeping her under lock and key, rather than plotting with English Catholics and the French for her overthrow. Keeping her locked up, though, wasn't problem-free either. Once the Pope had issued his fatwa against Elizabeth, declaring her to be a heretic and legitimising anybody who wanted to have a go at her, it was dangerous to have Mary around as a potential rallying point for any disaffected English Catholic who might want a change of regime. In the end, and it was a long end, it took 19 years, Elizabeth gave way to Cecil's pleas and agreed that the Axeman might be the best solution to her Queen of Scots problem. Mary was duly beheaded. Later on, Elizabeth declared herself to be gnawed by remorse and furious that the death warrant was sent off as soon as she'd signed it and before she could sleep on it again. That may be true, though it seems unlikely. After all, if she'd wanted more time to think about the execution, why did she sign the death warrant? What's more, there can be little doubt that the beheading of Mary Queen of Scots eliminated a thorn in Elizabeth's side and even a threat to her life. On the other hand, it was hardly very cousinly. And that's as good a point as any to call a halt to this episode. What about the next one? You will, I hope, have noticed how big a role religion played in all the events that we've been considering. So in the next episode, we'll take a look at the role of God in all these exciting developments. Yeah.